Welcome to the West Bridgewater Public Library podcast. I'm Ellen Snow, Best Library Director, and with me today is my oldest daughter, Gretchen Snowenbus Newman, who is calling in from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hi, Gretchen. Hi, Mom. How's it going out there? Is it, we have a temperature of nine degrees here in West Bridgewater. Oh, I think we're actually warmer than you. We were at 10 this morning. <laughs> my wife, Kira, biked into work. Oh, my gosh. She's a brave soul. Braver than well, I. I think it's very timely of us to be talking about romance fiction on such a cold day mm -hmm. because we know how romance steams up the body and excites the mind. The reason I was wanting to talk to Gretchen about romance is um, if those of you who don't know it, she is in a doctor of medicine at Wayne State University Medical Center and she, her specialty is infectious disease. So she's a professional woman with a lot of education background and yet has been, not, I shouldn't say and yet, but also has been an avid reader for ever since she was a little girl, of course. But uh, one of her particular interests is romance novels. How did you kind of get into that, Gretchen? I started reading romance novels in kind of two phases. So I read what I would have considered to be higher class, classy romance novels. You know, Jane Austen, things that have a strong romantic component when I was a teenager, but always had looked down on bodice rippers, what were called at the time bodice rippers. You know, I remember being in my early teens and like clean of the cave bear was all the rage amongst the grownups. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm far too classy for that. And Outland, it was the first wave of Outlander. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm far too classy for that. And then I think it was when I was in the Peace Corps and I was just, I needed pages to turn. I read so much during those years and I just, I read everything. And I really stopped having any kind of filter on what I read. So I read the entire Left Behind series. You want to talk trashy books, that was trash. But I also read a lot of romance then and I found it kind of, fun and delightful. And then when I was in medical training as a resident and a fellow, medical training is really emotionally draining. You're watching people, you're spending most of your time watching people in having the worst days of their life and often. And romance novels were literature that didn't really require much of me. You know, like much of genre fiction, it didn't ask. The ask wasn't as much as literary fiction often is. And so I just started reading it. It, it was calming. It was soothing. You know, it's going to be end up okay in the end. And so you're not waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I started to get into the tropes of it and to kind of think about it and think about this as, you know, why do I like this? Why is this working for me? And so I, I enjoy it. I like, I like reading romance novels the way some people watch reality television. You know, it is not that grave. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a fun way to just relax. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a librarian, I say reading is reading is reading. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, we're I'm always telling parents of teens, elderly people um, that, you know, really reading is very uh, good for the brain. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you read, whether you're reading graphic novels or zines or ebooks or print books or, you know, whatever you want to read. It's, um, it's healthy for the brain. I totally agree. And I think that, you know, genre fiction in general gets a bad rap, whether it's, 
you know, murder mysteries or thrillers or romance novels, a lot of sci-fi genre fiction. We think about it as, as, you know, quote unquote trash reading, but really it's a huge window into what people's perceptions and expectations are. And if you think about it, and I, as I did, on, do, did and do on my currently very long commute, it's, it's a window into what other people are thinking about and how other people are, are coping with more generalized concerns. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, during this pandemic, we've been tracking the kinds of books people are reading mm -hmm. and romance has just, it's always been strong. And now it's even bigger than it was before because people need that escape. They need the escape and romance novels are about connection. Yeah. They're about people forming lasting, healthy connection in large part. You know, mm -hmm. you can go into romance subgenre, but the overwhelming majority of romance novels are about two people. And there are many caveats here. There's many problems with romance novels that we can talk about. Some of the challenges and controversies, but two people forming an emotional and physical connection on purpose. Right. And that's what people are missing right now, right? For those of us who are in long-term committed partnerships, we are really only seeing our partner for months at a time, potentially. And reading about other people's connections can be helpful. For single people, the pandemic has really cut off a lot of the methods of connection, you know, physical connection, but also, you know, just in-person connection with other people and romance novels and reading about that can fulfill some, certainly not all, it's certainly a poor substitute for the real thing, but it can fulfill some of that need, which I think is basic and human. Right. But don't you think that there's a particular bias against romance in the general public that you don't find in other genres as much, which is crazy. People are definitely ashamed of it. And I call it the, the lunchroom or the airplane test. You know, if you were reading a Jack Reacher novel, also genre fiction, right? You're reading a Jack Reacher novel in the lunchroom. You're not going to be embarrassed when one of your coworkers comes in, right? If you're on a plane on a business trip, let's all remember back to the day when people used to do that. <laughs> you could sit next to your boss and read, you know, the latest uh, James Patterson, Dave Kellerman or James Patterson novel without feeling any embarrassment. But if you were to pull out the most recent Courtney Milan or Julia Quinn or Selena Montgomery, you're going to have to, you're going to have to take a deep breath before you let someone who's in your certainly in your workspace, but even in your friend group, potentially see you read that. It's something that particularly for professional women, I think that we hide. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where uh, having it on an ebook was probably a, a helpful thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause no one can tell what I'm reading on my Kindle or my ebook reader. I was reading somewhere where the ebook is really the brown paper bag for some. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is and so I think that there's this perception that romance novels are shameful in some ways because they have sex in them. Right. And I really call your attention to how much sex is in other genre fiction. Oh and really disturbing sex in other disturbing genres. Disturbing sex, sexual assault, sexual abuse. All of this stuff is not that it is absent from other and if we want to talk about why, we can talk about why I'm so ready to go. Go for it. Go for it. So if you look at particularly, I think, genre fiction aimed at men, it is not that sex is absent. It is that sex is from a male gaze. 
And we as a society are very comfortable with sex from a male gaze. You think about, you know, all of the, all of the stuff that gets advertised using sex, all of the ways that we include sex in our movies and television shows, it's almost all from a male gaze. The real subversive truth of romance novels is that they have sex from a female gaze. Mm-hmm. Why is that considered so trashy or so much more lurid? Right. The idea that women want to read about sex from their perspective, sex and desire from their perspective. The entire world is filled with images of sex and desire, whether, you know, in the romance world, we call it open door, meaning explicit sex versus closed door, which is like cut to the waterfall. Right. whether it's open door or closed door in the popular imagination, we're generally okay with it as long as it's from a male gaze. But you, the second you talk about women's desire or the way that women experience sex, all of a sudden, right? You know, red alert, this is trashy, this is dirty, this is something that we need to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Um, where I have read far more disturbing sex in not just, you know, quote unquote, high literature or literary fiction, but in genre fiction in general that we would re- have no problem pulling out of the doctor's office. Right, right, exactly. Now I've been reading this book called Beyond Heaving Bosoms by Sarah Wendell and Candy Tan. Sarah Wendell is somebody who uh, has that, I think she has a uh, podcast, but she also has a website called The Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Is that the name of it? That is the website, smartbitchestrashybooks.com. Which is just f- riddled with all sorts of cool links, and lots of deep dives and all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, uh, she says something really interesting in her, in the kind of the opening of the book. She says, um, romances, as we've mentioned before, have undergone some fairly drastic changes over the past several years. People didn't think that it would survive. They, p- people kind of blamed it for trying to make it publicly correct. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that the cornerstones of romance had to include brutal heroes, an obsession with virginity and rape. Whereas she says that the newer romance novels have gentler heroes, more scenes from the, from the hero's perspective. Like the, mm-hmm. the male perspective is value to some extent, which mm-hmm. is, but um, obviously written more from a p- female perspective. And the heroines have, are sexually experienced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> virgins being swept away by some, you know, dominant man. She also says that there's been a quiet but slow death of the rapist hero. Yeah. Which is really uh, kind of shocking to wrap my mind around. What does she mean by the rapist hero? There has long been this trope of women, in order for women to own their desire, they had to, in in a sense, be forced into it. The place that I think it comes out most clearly actually is in... um, lesbian dime store novels of the 50s and 60s. If you look at lesbian dime store novels of the 50s and 60s, they depict what end up often being consensual um, lesbian relationships that involve sex. They all start from a position of coercion. And a lot of it has to do with internalized shame, I think. So the more you have internalized shame around your sexuality and the expression of that sexuality, the more you have to access that through a lack of consent. Hmm. And so the way that that becomes okay to want something is you didn't want it to begin with, you just enjoyed it after. 
Wow. And that is a really detrimental trope that I think has been pushed on women for many, many years and is the origin of the rapist hero. Uh-huh. As women have in society, and when I say society, we're talking you know, largely about US culture and Western culture more generally, is have been able to own their sexuality and say, actually, I want sex. And I don't necessarily want sex only in the context of a lifelong monogamous relationship. That sense of having to be forced, quote unquote, forced to do what you actually wanted to do has been removed. And so we see that in the expression of, in, the, in these expressions of women's desire from the female gaze is you no longer need that permission of force. So the force gives you permission to want what you've always want, to enjoy what you wanted anyway. Right. But I think it's, it's a, an incredibly destructive trope. Yeah. And sets up horrible dynamics and horrible expectations for how relationships will go. And so I, I laud its demise, but I do think that's what it's related to. And too, as someone who grew up at the time of the, um, the contraceptive pill revolution, mm-hmm. just the catching up that literature had to, to, to do to catch up with the idea that the pill offered women the chance to be sexual beings without the... Um, expectation that um, childbearing would necessarily, you, 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 could, dis, you could distinguish between the two yeah. um, experiences for a woman is, I mean, that was a huge, that was a huge revolution to wrap your mind around at the time. Yeah. And we're seeing similarly for gay men with PrEP, the oh. ability to divorce, to divorce sex from the fear of HIV oh. has had an enormous change in the way a lot of men experience their sex lives. Yep. Similarly, as we have with U equals U as having HIV, if you have controlled HIV with an undetectable viral load on medication, we know now that you cannot transmit HIV. Similar to the birth control revolution, this has revolutionized sex for gay men That's and really changed their relationship with sex. Right. So, and and has, has rolled over into gay men's romance, which is a whole subgenre that I have to confess, I don't read and I don't know that well, but I know like has that, changed the response to this. Yeah, we have um, a collection of um, male gay romance. That's, that's really interesting. And I think um, the idea of having um, books written from all different perspectives. I mean, the beauty of the romance, it seems like you can, you can really go down the bat rabbit hole in a variety of different lifestyles and, and sexual orientations and, and, and gender expressions mm-hmm. is, um, it's really incredibly liberating. You, it, you can pick what you want and someone's writing it for you. That's the thing. It's, it's almost like some of these genres like romance have explored a wider diversity Mm-hmm. Of humanity than quote unquote, you know, bestseller fiction. Yeah. As 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 seen in the New York Times, you know, book review necessarily. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people want what they want and they will purchase what they want. Yeah. And so the market for it, which is there's a market for it. And and there are un- I will say there are deeply untapped markets. Mm-hmm. in romance and romance has gone through a number of of reckonings in the last several years particularly around questions of ableism oh um and race oh yeah and then the question of you know questions questions of sexual identity and, and you know beauty standards are perennial but yeah. you know we need diverse books is certainly true 
in romance, perhaps particularly true. Everybody deserves to have, you know, the romance novel that's written about their particular life circumstance and desire. Yeah. And well-written. Children's children's literature has suffered from an enormous amount of homogeneity. And, you know, people um, have asked us here at the West Bridgewater Public Library, which is not exactly the most diverse community in the world, but even still we get people come in and say, I need a picture book where the kids look like my kids. Right. And representation is huge with that. Important. Absolutely. Very important to see yourself in literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that this is something where um, the, the screen adaptation of Bridgerton. Yes. Julia Quinn's novels has been incredibly important. Let's talk so about that. I'm ready. So Julia Quinn happens to be the wife of my program director for infectious disease. What? I have met Julia Quinn. Thank you very much. Oh my God. Hashtag romance royalty. Oh my God. That's amazing. Gretchen. I had no idea. Yeah. Where does uh, she- she's lovely. Oh, does she live in Detroit? No, no, no. She lives in Seattle. Oh, okay. Um, so for an I for I trained. Yeah. Oh my God. So you've met Julia. Uh, Quinn, my good met Julia Quinn. She's an aura yeah. around you. I know she's just as fabulous as her books. And I have, I was a stan of hers long before. Oh, great. Because, because I think she writes really high quality romance novels for Maybe her like characters. A stan. a stan, like a, a, it's like a, an online fan. Standing oh. is like, Damn. I don't know, it's like ride or die fandom. Okay. Standing is online fan. Okay. Okay, I'm glad you ex- explained that because I'd never heard that term before. I heard it from one of my patients. It's what the cool kids say. Right, right. You've got your, you've got your ear to the ground there. I do. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing <laughs> is, what I loved about Bridgerton was the way Shonda Rhimes, you know, really expanded yes. the cast to include yes. so many wonderful actors mm-hmm. from a variety of um, ethnic backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. And historical romance in particular can be incredibly whitewashed. Yes. And I think that what Shonda Rhimes did with, with Julia Quinn's full out loud approval and support was to really write people of color back into history in a way that's, you know, plus minus historical. There's yeah. many online argument about all of that, but I think is really important for those of us who read romance and think about romance, we tend to people who read genre fiction in general, romance happens to be one of the many genres that I read. You know, you you have your safe space and your comfort zone. I read this kind of book. Right. I read books by these authors. And what seeing people who don't look like you expect or have been trained to expect and having it be so well done and so good mm-hmm. and having 82 million people in the first, 82 million households in the first 28 days, I think, tune oh, in to Bridgerton, yeah. the biggest Netflix release ever. Yeah. Not only says to romance novel publishing companies, hey, people will, people will show up for this. Yes. If, if you publish, they will come. Right. But also to people who are already there, hey, you can step out of what you expect and still enjoy it. Right. Yeah. There's a conservatism to a, a small C conservatism, not in no way political, but people just like, they know what they like, they like what they like. And many people yeah. don't read much beyond that. Right. Um, so anything that you can do to introduce them, I think is just hugely valuable. And it's nice to break, burst those bubbles. It is. You know, it just expands the horizon so much. Well, I'm listening, I have to say right now to um, 
a book by Stacey Abrams under the name of Selena Montgomery. Montgomery. Deception. And um, it's very steamy. But it's also a murder mystery. And so kind of what I liked about that, because I've read, I've tried reading other, um, I mean, I've read, I actually read the first two books of the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn, and I've totally enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. They were really well written and extremely interesting. But then I've also read some other romance that are kind of just boring. I had yes. to put them down because there just wasn't any tension in it. Mm-hmm. But Selena Montgomery, you know, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of sexual tension, but there's also a lot of tension in terms of you really don't know how the plot is going to somehow work itself out because you know that there does have to be a happily ever after, right? Isn't that definitions of romance? Yes. There has to be a happily ever after. How are you going to get there is the whole question. And the more obstacles you put to that, the more interested I was. Yeah. And I think that one of the challenges with, one of the reasons historical romance is so popular is that the challenges to the happily ever after are structural and identifiable. Whereas I personally find with much modern, a lot of modern romance, I'm like, just what, what is your problem? Like, I don't understand why you're not talking about this. I don't understand why you guys can't just get together and figure it out and be grownups. And that's where, you know, adding a murder mystery element really, really can add to that and create more believable tension. Right. Yeah. Because some of the tension is just in the roles that people play, and yet they're sexually attracted to each other, which is is really exciting and fun to watch. Exactly. Exactly. It is fun. And I would say, you know, if you're someone who reads fantasy, if you're someone who reads sci-fi and really likes world building, you know, there's a lot of world building that goes into romance. Nobody is writing a historical romance in a real world. They're all changing it in some way. And so I would say, you know, try it out, see if you like it. There's a lot of crossover with paranormal romance where you have both world building and romance. Oh, that's interesting. Even modern romance to a certain extent does a, does a significant amount of world building. I find, I personally find it less compelling, Yeah. but other people have different interests. Like when I escape, I want to totally escape. I don't want to in, I don't want to think about whether or not People have access to healthcare. I don't want to think about any of the modern world when I read escapist fiction. Oh, you still want to escape. I want a true escape. Now, speaking of escape, let's let's at least touch on High, um, Outlander. Yeah. What yeah. is up with Outlander and why is it so in, enormously important? It's almost like Harry Potter. There just doesn't seem to be any end no. to the borrowing of the Outlander books. She's written something like 10,000 pages and she's not done yet. And people will read literally every page that she writes. How did you get into it in the first place? I had resisted for a long time and I finally got into it when... Again, a need for pages to turn. Right. And I was like, well, there's a lot of pages of this. Okay. And I started. And Did you start when you were in uh, Mali in the Peace Corps? No, uh-uh. I only started it. I had taken a long break from reading uh, when I was really burnt out in, tra- in my medical training. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of years where I really didn't read at all. And Outlander was one of the books where I was like, I knew it was not going to be demanding of me in any way. And there was a lot of it. And as I was getting back into it, uh, getting back into reading, I was like, no, I'll try it. And then I just kept going. Right. A thousand pages later, I was hungry for the next book. (laughs) I think that it speaks to people. So first of all, the the quote unquote modern day in the first book is just just after the Second World War. And there's a huge spike in World War II fiction right now. Yes. Um, Like find me a historical fiction book that isn't set during the Second World War. And I will find you a diamond in the rough. 
Oh God, I know. It's kind of exhausting. It's very exhausting, but without really delving into the Second World War, it has that link to what people are already reading. Right. And so they get into it that way. Then, and we can do a whole podcast on this, why Scottish Highlanders are romance novel heroes, but Irish people are not. Oh, I'm dying to have that conversation. Is like the foundation of what I call uh, Outlander studies that I torture my wife with. Um, <laughs> and has some actual historical reasons for why um, that happens. Okay. But the Outlander books, because there is so much of them, they contain multitudes. And she really grapples with things that a lot of modern people are grappling with. She talks a lot about infertility. She talks a lot about making difficult decisions in imperfect world. This isn't the life I planned on. This is the life I was given. What am I going to do with it? Yes. It's kind of the central tension of that first book. Right. You know, for a lot of people, for most people, you know, there's that, what is that six word uh, histories? that six word life stories or something, not quite what I was planning. Right. (laughs) For most of us, what our lives are. As I recall, she is fond of her husband in modern times. Yeah. She's she's not a bad person. No, she's She's not protecting him. But then when she travels back to like the 18th century, she actually has the experience of falling in love. Yes. Which is different from a relationship in with her, um, 1950s husband yeah yeah and, I mean that's fascinating that that tension runs through the whole series I would think it does it does um, so, well I definitely want to talk about that with you at another point in time absolutely I know you have a ton of um, interesting I have so many words things. about it and I welcome uh pushback on it because I have been in my own little internet deep dive <laughs> that's great yeah well I think this has been fascinating Anything yeah. else you'd like to talk, mention in terms of um, the appeal of romance and what you can, we, what, we, what we might be able to be expecting from romance um, writing in the future? Or- I am not qualified to talk about romance writing in the future. I can say that over the last 10 years, romance has really diversified yeah. and done it out loud. I would say Courtney Milan has really led things for the, and you can, there's a whole, there's a lot of drama around this that you can dig into, but Courtney yeah. Milan is a leader I'm, I'm just telling people I'm going to put, put any links that you might have for us in the show notes. Um, and then Smart Bitches Trashy Books. If you want to dip your toe in and think that you might have something that you're specifically looking for, they have whole book finders that you can click off on yes. you know, however many different criteria and find stuff. It's really a really rich website from what I can see. It is. It's been around for a good while. It's been around for a good while. And it's a fun community. Romance, you know, romance novel readers are not pretentious people. Right. Yeah. And I think the variety that there is, it reminds me a lot of YA fiction. YA fiction back in the day was really boring and very moralistic and um, very confining. And you weren't allowed to write more than 200 pages because they didn't think teens would read more than 200 pages. And that was all blown out of the water by Harry Potter. And now, um, just it's, there's been a renaissance of YA writing and the quality is just going up and up and up. And again, also similar to romance, yeah. the diverse of uh, the diverse storylines and characters has also broadened and it's just been really fun to watch. Well, and I would say a lot of, a lot of these women have been writing for a long time. And I think that's important to Mark, you know, there's yeah. this new disco- quote unquote new discovery of people who've been writing since the nineties. 
Yeah. The first Outlander book came out in the early 90s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're talking about really a 30 year evolution here. So let's not pretend that that just because we've discovered it, it hasn't been ongoing for many years. Oh, exactly. I just can't believe the quality of writing by Stacey Abrams. I mean, she's, yeah. not, you know, this, she does this as for fun, kind of on the yeah. side, you know, her, her day job is as a political organizer of, you know, amazing, you know. Yeah, she, she, she works too. She, she works a full, full day doing her quote unquote real job and then still finds time for this. Yeah. And she, it's, the writing is actually really good. It's, it's very engaging. Don't sound so surprised, Mom. Romance is full of good writers who just happen to who happen to be, for the large part, women who write for other women. Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, thanks so much, Gretchen, for for helping us think of the, think this through and offering your perspective. Sure. And, uh, uh, and friends on on the podcast, I will be putting in as many of the uh, of the links and show notes that I can to flesh it all out for you if you have any interest in pursuing this genre that's really burgeoning and growing and deepening in its uh, range. So until next time, happy reading everyone. And bye Gretchen. Bye mom. <laughs>